This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. What do God's people do when there is a perceived problem with leadership? What do God's people do when there's a vacuum there? when they sense that either things are not moving as fast as they would like and it's because the leaders are not with the program or too fast for them because they're committed the way they've always done it or when there's a pastoral transition or some other kind of crisis. What do the people of God do in such circumstances? And I don't just mean congregation members in general, but other leaders in the church and senior leaders. What do they do? Well, the story of the golden calf bears directly on that. So I invite you to turn to Exodus 32. I've got the ESV open before me today, but it's close to what you probably have. Exodus 32 describes just such a situation. Here are a group of people who were impatient because... They didn't know what had happened to their leader, Moses. They perceived a leadership vacuum. And what they did and how Aaron and Moses responded is very instructive for all of us. The context of this text is crucial, as in every biblical text. Remember, we're talking here about the redeemed people of God. The whole Old Testament is the picture of God's deliverance from Egyptian bondage and then what he did with his people after that to keep his promise to Abraham that he would from his heirs make a people. So these are redeemed people. Moses has gone up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and we take up the story there. Now, you might be thinking, I've read this story many times and I know what it's all about. I I remember Aaron's pathetic excuse. And so you may be thinking, well, this is a rebuke of Aaron. And I don't particularly identify with him, so I'm home and dry. Or you may say, oh, Moses did pretty well here, but he was the very senior leader. He was the mediator between God and man. This This is for Brian and for other senior leaders like the elders. But in this text... The word for people is used 20 times. And since they didn't have bold and underline and italics, the way biblical writers emphasize things is by repetition. So I've got a feeling this is going to say something to all of us, to the people. And I think what it's going to say is, watch yourself lest you fall into a great sin. Watch yourself lest you fall into a great sin. Because three times in this text, we hear what they did described as a great sin. And I think this text is here for a warning for all of us, whatever our role is in the body of Christ. So here's how I hope for us to look at it together. Whenever you study a narrative passage, you know, narratives are stories, and stories usually have a beginning, a middle, and an end. In the beginning, there's a problem. There's a middle where the problem gets worse, and then there's some level of resolution. And this story is no exception to that. But it's not just in three scenes. This story is in eight scenes. 
So instead of reading the whole text at the beginning in one chunk, I'm going to read it in scenes, say just a little bit about that, and then draw some lessons for all of us at the end. Are you on board with that? Scene one. Scene one, the problem. Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a serious problem, later described as a great sin. Let's try to focus on what the problem actually was. Their impatience with Moses' return was direct disobedience to the revealed will of God. Turn back to chapter 24 for a moment, verses 13 to 14. Moses is at the top of the mountain Nadab and Abihu, with Joshua. Nadab and Abihu uh, are, are with Aaron, their, their father, sort of partway up the mountain. They're close, but they're not all the way at the top. And it says there, so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. I'm reading 2413. And Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, who must have been with Aaron and his sons, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And you notice in verse 18 of that same chapter, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So something just under six weeks, but there was a direct command there to Aaron and the other elders who were there to have the people wait until Moses returned. So their their disobedience was they didn't obey a very simple single command little bit like the Garden of Eden. Wide uh, permission, eat of any tree, just not this one. Single prohibition. This is a single positive command. Wait here. And they didn't do it. Moreover, I think it's worth saying they were overly reliant on Moses. Now it's true, Moses was the sole mediator at this point between them and God. But they didn't know what to do without him right there giving them guidance. It's a picture of an undiscipled people. And did you notice that this was really grassroots idolatry? 
So that there in that uh, fourth verse, the text says, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel. What an amazing thing. God himself, of course, had delivered them from Egyptian bondage. They had, at that very time, talked Aaron into fashioning this golden calf with a graving tool, and then they called it God. But in verse 6, when the text says here, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, this is not sack races after the Sunday school picnic. The word for play here has uh, sexual connotations. That when, uh, when the king looked down on Isaac and saw him with someone who he said, this isn't my wife, as his father had done, the word that's used there is this same word. There was something he saw that made it very clear that this was a more intimate relationship. So when all of this happened, these people went wild, as the text is going to say later on. Moreover, it's always a good thing when you're studying a passage of the Bible to check other places where it's referred to. So when the first martyr, first Christian martyr, Stephen, preached and recounted the whole history of Israel, he mentions this event and he says there in Acts 7.41, they were rejoicing in the work of their hands. So not only had they set God aside, they had put themselves very much in the center of things. And they were rejoicing in the work of their own hands. Scene two, God's assessment and proposed remedy, verses 7 to 10. Scene two. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. This is a tough thing that the Lord says here. Did you notice the shift? He now calls the people, not my people, but your people. He's already distancing himself from the chosen people. You brought them up here. Look at what they have done. They've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly, and it was quickly. And they worshipped an idol and they sacrificed to it because they were stiff-necked. A very vivid picture of hard-heartedness, of resistance to the work of God. So God is saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, step aside, Moses, I know I have appointed you as a mediator between me and them, but you just step to one side. I'm going to pour out my wrath on these people and I'm going to fulfill my covenant promise through you. God will always keep his word, and he said, I'm I'm going to plan B here. All I need is one descendant of Abraham to keep my covenant promise, and you're it. I'm fed up with the rest of people. That's scene two. Scene three, Moses' intercession, verses 11 to 13. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, 
Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore in your own self, by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. So as an intercessor, he invites God to turn away from his wrath. And he argues on solidly biblical ground. He said, you have redeemed these people. It would be a waste now to sort of undo that redemption. More than that, think, God, of your reputation. It's all about glorifying God. And if you do this, then the people of Egypt will say, with evil intent, he brought them out of bondage in Egypt. Think of your word, your covenant promise. And he lists all the patriarchs and said, you've got to keep your word. Scene four, the Lord relents. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses was on praying ground. He prayed for the glory of God. He prayed according to the word of God. And God heard his prayer and turned away his wrath. His intercession was successful. Scene five. Moses and Joshua go down to see the problem for themselves. Verses 15 to 20. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink of it. So here are Moses and Joshua coming down the mountain, and the sound is confusing. They have a hard time knowing what to make of it. There's this cacophony of sounds. Sounds first like battle cry. wasn't victory. wasn't defeat. And then they got a little closer in verse 19 and saw this enraging sight. So here is the the calf. They see the idol. And then they see the people dancing. And for those in my generation, this was kind of a, it was a sort of a Woodstock kind of a feel to the place. It was a rave up. It was bad. And so Moses reacts furiously. He takes this calf, grinds it up, well, burns it, grinds it up finally, puts it in the water and makes them drink it. You might say he wants to give them a taste 
of God's wrath. And he did. That's scene five. Scene six, Moses rebukes Aaron, verses 21 to 24. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. You should laugh at that point. Things that are ridiculous deserve to be ridiculed. This is the lamest imaginable excuse. Notice his question, which isn't really a question. What did this people do to you? He is accusing Aaron. And remember, Aaron is his big brother. He said, what in the world did you let these people do to you? And then verses 22 to 24 are a a fabulous example of blame blame shifting. Aaron says, it wasn't me, it was them. Minimizing what he had actually done, that he had taken a great tool and crafted the golden calf. Scene 7. Moses meets out the punishment. Verses 25 to 29. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each one of you, and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. Now, Moses was very clear that the blame needed to be shared. And so verse 25 makes that plain. It was the people and it was Aaron. He speaks the truth there. But then his call to allegiance to the Lord is very significant in verse 26. Don't miss the fact that the opportunity to repent was extended to everybody. Anybody. He said, anyone who is on the Lord's side, come to me. The ideal would have been if everybody of the whole nation had said, yes, we're horribly in the wrong here, we will come to you. They had an opportunity. They were called to repent. That puts in perspective what the text records next. Everyone had an an opportunity to repent. Only some Levites did. And then they were commissioned by the command of Moses to inflict early wages of sin upon those sinners. Every time we see judgment in the Bible, it's just a foretaste of final judgment, and we should take that as well as a warning. Sin is costly. Sin brings the death penalty, and from time to time, we have to see that very vividly and to see the cost of it 
to those who are called to execute that penalty. Scene 8. Moses offers his life for the lives of the guilty people. Verses 30 to 35. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive your sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. In verse 30, there's a very significant word as the ESV translates it. Moses says, perhaps I can make atonement. Perhaps I can make atonement. But God rejects that offer because no sinner can atone for another's another sinner's sin. No sinner can atone for another sinner's sin. Perhaps I can make atonement? No, says God. On the day when I visit, I will inflict punishment on the people. What then is Moses to do? Verse 34, lead the people. His job is a leader here. He is not the ultimate mediator. He is a leader. And that's crucial for leaders to understand because that same verse, verse 34, is a reaffirmation of a promise. My angel will go before you. You students in a Bible church of the early chapters of the Bible, early books of the Bible, know that the angel of the Lord is not just something between God and humanity. Angels are supernatural beings, but the word angel really just means messenger. So when we talk about the evangel, the gospel, right at the middle of that word is is message, and an angel is someone deputed by God to deliver a message. In these chapters, when you read those texts carefully, what you discover is that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus himself. All three persons of the Trinity have always existed and will always exist. But Jesus, before his birth, shows up a few times as the angel of the Lord. So here is a promise of God saying, Moses, you are not the Messiah. But I'll send the angel of the Lord, and he is a, a, an, a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus himself who will come and who is the Messiah. I will judge sin. You can count on that. But I will also send the Messiah. That's the story. What are the lessons? If you have been a Bible reader for a long time, you probably know how stories in the Bible work. Stories in the Bible work surprisingly like other stories. 
if you read a good story, short story, good novel, if you see a good film, I suppose there are a few good films, if you see a good film, you know how they work. They work by identification. In a story, there are characters, and we identify with certain characters. If it's a good character, we say, I want to be like that. If it's a bad character, we say, I don't want to be like that. That's how Bible stories work as well. So in this story, we have Moses, we have Aaron, we have the people. With whom do you identify here, either positively or negatively? With whom do you say, yeah, I'd I'd like to be a little bit more like that, or I don't want to be like that. Let's take them one at a time and see what lessons they have for us. First, the people. That's the main focus here. They're mentioned 20 times. They are stiff-necked and hard-hearted. Do you know how they got into trouble? Let me underscore it. They got into trouble because essentially they were undiscipled. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether Aaron and his sons and the elders did did or did not adequately communicate this command, wait. We saw in chapter 24, verse 13, it was a very clear command, wait till Moses comes back. That was the only thing they had to do at this point. There were a lot of instructions about building the tabernacle. Their job was just to wait. They didn't do that. Any member of a church who is undiscipled is a sitting duck for great sin. It's just the way it works. But watch how they were dragged into this. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 32. When Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together. Now suppose someone has questions about a leader, keeps them to themselves, keeps that to himself or herself, prays about it, and goes to that individual whom they have questions. That is not intrinsically a bad thing. But when there's a person who's got a problem, he says, I think someone else has got this same problem with leadership. Let's, Let's just get together and talk this over. Let's just pray about this. Well, prayer is a good thing, but getting together was part of their problem here. They believed a lie that we'll have strength in numbers. We'll get together and we'll we'll take this little group and we'll take the next step. If somebody comes to you with a complaint about the leadership of the church, by the way, I've heard very good reports about your church, so just store this up for the future. Because it could happen. It can happen in the best of churches. Don't listen to them. Stop them in mid-sentence. Send them to the person they really need to talk with. Don't become part of a group because they gathered themselves together. The second serious mistake that they made was to recruit a lower-level staff person, Aaron, to their cause. They gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to said to him, "Up, oh, make us gods." So their their instruction to him was ridiculous but it worked. As uh, Pastor Brian said, I was an associate pastor in two churches before I was a senior pastor. I know how this works. Someone who has a problem with leadership comes to the associate pastor and says, you know, I, I think the senior pastor is really quite weak on this. You've got this right, but I think the senior pastor is really quite weak on this. And here's the problem for the associate pastor if someone does that. Suppose there is a grain of truth in that, as there is in most criticisms. If he says, oh, that's rubbish, 
he loses credibility with the parishioner. If he goes along with it, he has aided and abetted that parishioner when he or she should have gone directly to the one with whom they have the problem. Pray for other leaders because the Aaronic position here is a very tricky one. I've lived that. I know that. Well, what, what is the alternative for the people? Don't listen to complaints. Send others to the appropriate leader with their concerns. And check your neck for stiffness. These people were stiff-necked. They were hard-hearted. They were resistant. Just ask God to make you pliable in his hand. Uh, my wife first grew up in, in Africa, and in uh, 2007, I think it was, we had the privilege of going on a three-day safari when I was out there on a teaching mission, and she was able to come along. And we were in a, a Land Rover-like vehicle getting to the, the area where the, the um, safari was to take place. And that particular stretch of Kenyon Road was really, really bad. And I found that if I tried to sort of hold myself, hold myself steady and be really stiff, I really got banged around. But when I just rolled with the way the Land Rover was rolling, it wasn't quite so painful. And when I resist what God is wanting to say and do in my life, it's painful for me and for the others in whose life I have a ministry. No, I need to listen to him. I need to become flexible. I need to really hear what he's saying. And to tribute to God the glory he's de- he, he is deserving of. Their massive sin was to attribute to something they had made and to glory in that something they had not done. The, the idol had not done that. God had done that. Uh, I met a few of you before service, and universally everybody said, well, I, I said, Brian was one of, my, one of my students, and they thanked me for my role in his life. I received that. I appreciate that. But I also want to say, don't give me too much credit. Give God the glory. The way the Apostle Paul does this is perfect. He says, I thank God when I remember you. I thank God for your ministry. Give glory to God and express appropriate appreciation for those who serve in ministry. But mainly, they needed to wait until God's word was fulfilled. It was only six weeks. That's why their idolatry is described as turning away quickly. So let me just ask here, before we go any further, if you're part of the people, if you're part of the redeemed here, what's God telling you to wait for? Whatever it is, wait. That's what faith looks like. Faith means trusting God even when you haven't yet seen him do what you know he has promised to do. Wait. Aaron. What can we learn from Aaron? That's the people. Second, Aaron. Well, Aaron became an idolater because he listened to other idolaters. He was dragged into this because he didn't have the backbone he needed, and he shifted blame. He said, I'm just a middle manager. I'm I'm caught here. He gave an excuse. He went along with the people and gave an excuse to Moses. And, of course, it was about as feeble as you can imagine. 
What's the alternative? What should he have done? If you are a ministry team leader, if you're a staff person, what should you do in these situations? Well, obviously, send any complainers to the one they should complain to. But what you are called to do is explain reality to the people. He could have so easily said, oh, Moses said, wait for him. In other words, he, he was responsible to disciple them to do what is right and to resist their ridiculous request. If you are a leader in this church, that's your responsibility. Keep discipling fellow believers and explain reality to them. Defend the leaders and answer all of those concerns that you can, but send them to the person with whom they have a complaint. That's Aaron. What about Moses? Well, Moses is, of course, a much more positive example here. So we want to pray like Moses prayed. He prayed theologically, biblically. He was concerned for God's glory, God's reputation. Pray that way. That's praying ground. And when you do that, even though it was a very serious thing, God said, okay. He relented of the wrath he had planned upon his people because Moses asked him to. And his prayer was a genuinely defensible prayer because it was rooted in the character and the nature of God as revealed in Scripture. And then call sin, sin. I serve three wonderful churches. It's very tempting when we pastors serve wonderful churches to uh, overdo the uh, adulation. If there is sin in the camp, it's our responsibility to call it sin. It's our responsibility to, to confront it. And Moses did that. He didn't beat around the bush. He called sin, sin. And he held people accountable And then to borrow Paul's phrase from Ephesians 4.26, we need to be angry and do not sin. Now, the text doesn't tell us precisely how well Moses did on that score here. It doesn't tell us, yes, he was angry, but there was no sin here. It doesn't say that. I'm not sure. sure. I don't want to go beyond what is written. I don't know. But I do know what we are called to do. Be angry. Be angry at the things God is angry at, but do not sin. And then ask questions. Um, Sometimes, I think as in verse 21 here, the question is not really a question. Like when my friend John Kessler in a book said, when my wife says to me, and when were you going to wash those dishes you left in the sink? It's not really a question. It's an accusation. Don't leave dirty dishes in the sink. And this was an accusation. He is saying to Aaron, what in the world were you thinking here? How did you let this happen? But I agree with John W. Alexander in his little booklet, uh, Practical Criticism, Giving and Taking. taking He says, always begin with a question. If you genuinely ask someone, tell me, do I rightly understand why? why this is happening, or, you know, ask a question that gives that ministry leader the opportunity to explain things. And it may be that you don't have all the information, and in fact, things are going better than you thought. It may also be that there is something that needs addressing, and that gives that person room to address that. They can say, 
hmm, I think you're right. Let's work on that together. Ask questions. But here's the key lesson from Moses. Remember that you're not the Messiah. Remember that you're not the Messiah. I remember in uh, the pastoral duties and church administration class in which Brian sat, one of the sections I had was avoid a Messiah complex. I'm all in favor of congregations loving their pastor, and you're right to do that. But you also owe it to him not to overdo that in a way that tempts him to think he's the Messiah. He isn't. He knows who is. You know who is. The Word of God reminds us who are in these positions who we are not. But you are a leader. And as God said to Moses... Just go to the place I've told you about. So leaders are to lead. They're to remember they're not the Messiah. They're just to lead. That is to say they are to avoid, to, to obey, as verse 34 says. But now lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. And believe God's promise concerning his angel. And as I've said already, that's Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Believe that promise. Trust people, Aaron, Moses, but there was one other character that I haven't mentioned in great detail yet, and that character is God. In the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is, a, is recounting the history of the people of God, listen to what he says about God. He's speaking to God, and he says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. That's our God. And what Nehemiah didn't know in detail, we know in great detail. That mercy has been manifested in our Lord Jesus. And his steadfast love never ceases. One of his mercies is to give us this warning. So my word to you, leader, middle manager, person in the pew, watch out. Watch out. Even wonderful churches can be dragged into idolatry because, as John Calvin says, the human mind is an idle factory. Watch out. Let the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God disciple you. When it says to do something, even something very simple like, wait, do it. Do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And trust that God will take that obedience of faith and use it for his glory. You bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy, for your steadfastness, that you do not forsake your children. And even... When there is great sin, where sin abounds, grace abounds, all that much more. We thank you for that. We 
glory in that. We rest in that. But we do not let that make us complacent. We take seriously that these redeemed people could turn away quickly. We pray that the spotlight of your word would shine on our hearts and show us those undiscipled areas, those places which need the work of your spirit to move us to the obedience of faith. For the glory of your name we pray.